there was a stage in, in 2006 when I was playing poorly, my body kept breaking down on me and just things were, were going a little wrong for me and Joe Schmitz pulled me aside before the All Blacks game in Chicago and he said you need a big one today but I knew from the way that he was looking at me and I knew from the vibes that I was getting off him during the week that I was very close to not being picked in that game. I've known enough of Joe at the time to know that he very much says what he's thinking and if you're walking a tight rope he's going to tell you. You know in terms of these really amazing coaches who understand which buttons to press in particular individuals, he probably knew that that might rile me up in some way and that that by putting me under that sort of severe pressure that he might get the best out of me. Rob Carney's fearless skills under the high ball and relentless attacking abilities may have made him one of the most dangerous fullbacks in world rugby. But it was his consistency, year in, year out, commitment to improve, work and deliver that earned him more accolades than any Irish rugby player in history. Even if you read only half of the list of stuff this man has won, it is ridiculous. A four-time winner of the Six Nations, two Grand Slams, four Heineken Cups, one Challenge Cup, six Pro 14s and two Lions Tour selections. I mean, all that doesn't happen accidentally or without bumps in the road. Well, the book he released last year with David Walsh is like Rob himself, head and shoulders above most sports biographies. That's where we start our chat today, but this thing goes all sorts of different directions in the second half, including the suffocating nature of Irish rugby and its bubble, why escaping to Australia felt so good, why exactly he feels he doesn't have it in him to be a coach, and the full details on why he's returned to the field to play Gaelic football for his childhood club in Louth. You can hear all of that in the extended cut of this episode on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad and I really recommend you do it this week. You know how it works, a few clicks and the price of a pint each month. You get access to all of our extended cuts back catalogue and you also get to walk around knowing you're contributing to the crowdfunding and continuation of this series into the future. We hit eight years last week. Hard to believe we are eight years old. That's eight years of episodes for you to enjoy, and we have never missed a week in that time. Now, sit back and relax and enjoy this much of the Rob Carney episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme... What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! 
Rob Carney, it's fantastic to have you on Irish Man Abroad. I know the dust has settled a bit on this book that you've written. And I guess sometimes when I talk to people too close to the book coming out, there's a sense that they're conscious that there's things that are going to be talked about and there's things that people will interview them about and become the questions that they get asked about in relation to their book. What were those things for you that you were most surprised that got picked up upon? And what were the things that you were surprised? Huh, nobody, nobody wanted to know about that particular bit that you probably predicted would be bigger. Yeah, I think, you know, firstly, great to be on the show. I'm a big fan of it. Regarding the book, you know, I, I was very sort of thorough and detailed in terms of you know, rereading the book, really diligent in terms of some of the exact messaging that I was trying to get out and whether it might offend someone or a particular interpretation somebody might take about a particular topic. So, but by the time that it went to print, I was really comfortable with anything that was in there. You know, and I looked at it from lots of people lots of different people's point of view. And I think if, if, if you can get to the end product where you're very comfortable with what you said and you've almost, almost premeditated your response to a particular question, it made it a lot easier for me to have those conversations after the book had been published. Mm. Okay, there was, there was bits and pieces in there that, that people you know, probably wouldn't have known about, you know, uh, a tragedy that the family had suffered back many years ago and, and also an insight into, into the mindset of professional sports people and, and how a lot of the, the time they're, they're no different to, to any other person in terms of the, you know, the, the mental battles that you have with yourself if you're going through a period of poor form or non-selection or, or the same conversations that, that we all have with each other on a different day that if we're not quite sure that, you know, we, we back our own ability or, or if we think that, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not good enough to do this. I thought it was really interesting when you spoke to Joe Malloy about it, that thing you just mentioned that you were conscious of what the message was or what what who's reading it and from what perspective in relation to your own primary school being a tough enough time for you where you I, I don't know if you wanted to call it bullying but you certainly got a bit of stick and you said to Joe that you were you were aware that youngsters might read the book and feel better about their situation knowing that someone who'd reached the heights you had had also been through that. So does that, that makes me wonder, like, what was it David Walsh dragging that part out of you? Or was that actually something that you started out going, well, I would like to mention that because that was significant in my life. Yeah, it, it was definitely the latter. Uh, you know, when, when you write a book, you want to you know, you want to achieve lots of different things by the end of it. And, and one of the things that I wanted to to achieve was, I suppose, to, to, to show people that, that sports people who excel at a particular job and have been lucky enough to achieve lots of things on a global stage do have the same mental thoughts and, and emotional and physical bar- barriers as any other person. 
and the other thing was was for you know for kids as well who are growing up and listen schoolyards are are, are tough at the best of times and, and and lots of kids do get a a tougher experience uh, and a more unenjoyable time at school when when it should be you know a very enjoyable part of their life and and i suppose i just took myself back to you know when i was in primary school if, if there was an outlet for me to read of you know, because I idolized rugby players when I was growing up. You know, rugby was was the sport that I loved so much. And the only thing I ever wanted to do was play rugby for Ireland. And I think if, if I had, you know, read one of my heroes back at that time, it, it would have been very comforting for me to know that, that they went through the same sort of situations. And what were you getting stick for? I mean, people like this will be surprising to people listening to this because... You know, as you know, there is there's an archetype that you fit where we don't pick you as a guy. Oh, I bet that guy was bullied in school. We wouldn't think that. So what were you getting the stick yeah, for? That was that was part of the reason, you know, you, you look at someone in their mid 20s, you know, coming through a professional sport, achieving great things playing for the country, everything looks so rosy in the garden, but you don't always know and, and understand their past. You know, like, it, it wasn't overly intense bullying, but, you know, it, it was enough to call it bullying. And it was it was the same sort of stuff that, that happens, you know, across any schoolyards across the country. You know, I was just the one who was on the receiving end of that at the time. Yeah, so, so David Walsh is obviously, you know, a big part of the book and we won't just talk about the book, but obviously we've had David on the show a couple of times and, you know, he he is into the deep dive and he you know, has written some of the best sports books ever written. Tell me a little bit about how he gets that out of you or what that process is like, because I'd imagine that he wants hours and hours and hours in your company to get to what is the meat of your story? Yeah, there was definitely, you know, I, th I think between the two of us, we did close to a hundred hours of recordings. What? A lot of them were in Facebook <laughs> pre-COVID. And then, you know, in the midst of COVID, they, they had moved to online. But I think the, the great thing about going face-to-face -face pre COVID was that there was a real element of trust built up there between the two of us. Mm. He was, you know, it's, it's a very, specific skill in an interviewer to be able to build up that trust and you know I'd, I definitely said at the end of the book that he'd probably gotten more out of me than I wanted to give at the, at the, at the start of the process but then that, that that's the sign of, of a really good journalist too. Mm, uh, so when you say what you didn't that you he got more out of you than you wanted to give there's obviously no regret in that way but what what did you want to give and what was the extra that he got? Yeah, you know, I can't say there was one specific story or one specific opinion about a previous coach, a player. It was probably just when I looked at the whole product at the very end that there was just little bits and pieces you know, dabbled throughout the whole book that were a little bit more. So, mm. you know, there wasn't, there's, there's not one specific story that I can say, yeah, he got 
exact thing out of me. Mm. I didn't want to say this, but he managed to to make me articulate it in a way that I was comfortable putting it down on paper. It was more just little bits of pieces dotted throughout the whole book, I would say. He's obviously, his name is forever attached to Lance Armstrong and doping, uh, drug cheats. You know, I've talked to so many of your teammates about this and it seems like the response over and over is the same, that I'm either a really naive person who people don't approach with these things or it just never came up or was never a discussion. I bet that David pushed you on that and I'm sure that you were expecting him to. At what point do you convince him, look, there's nothing in my experience in this sport to suggest that there's any drugs there uh, at the highest level. You know, it, it comes back to the trust thing again, doesn't it? And mm. we would have spoken so openly and honestly on tape, but we would have had, you know, of those hundred hours, another 10 hours of conversation off tape as well. Mm. And when you're speaking off the record and you're not giving any sort of intimation or some side of idea that you would have been exposed to some sort of drugs throughout your whole career, he would have been able to sniff up on that pretty, pretty quickly. So, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't speak a huge amount about it. And I'd say part of the reason of that is as well that, that David knows deep down that there's very little drugs in the sport. And, you know, the, the data shows that, and particularly in Ireland, you know, I don't know why I always feel the need to overemphasize this point, but I've never been exposed to it. And I've never even been exposed to a conversation about it in my 16 years of rugby. It's so like it's nearly weird, though, uh, Rob, isn't it? Like it's nearly it's it's kind of brilliant on the one hand and weird on another that this is a problem for all of these sports and not rugby. And I don't want to labor it because, you know, you can only speak from your experience. But is that, in your opinion, down to what, what could that be down to? Is it just the, the amount of testing? Is it is it some greater sense of the laws of the game, uh, the sportsmanship of those involved? Why would this one sport seem to be, as you say, the data show that it doesn't seem to be affected? Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's necessarily just this one sport. You know, there's lots of sports right across the world that don't have an issue with drug taking. You know, I don't know the full data. We've obviously just come out of the Olympics, which still has, you know, a pretty bad reputation in terms of its cycling, has, has another bad reputation. But to come back to your initial question, you know, rugby in this country, I think the game of rugby has very good values. And that's something that is, is important to the global landscape of the game. The testing is really strong. You know, I've been tested I'd say close to 40 times in my career and lots of players would be exposed to that sort of rigorous testing. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding a little bit of the, the amount of, of data that has come back of people who have, have you know, been, been caught taking, you know, abusing drugs. I'd love to talk to you about 
a couple of the moments because we can't we can't obviously sift through everything here as much as I'd love to spend a few hours going through it all. There have been some moments along the way for you that you must, now that the dust has settled on writing the book, but also just on kind of the playing days with uh, it, it kind of disappearing or going further into your rear view mirror. You've a better understanding of the impact of these moments. One of those moments I really want to ask you about is one that would affect your health going forward through everything. This uh, weight room incident that produces this back problem for you. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what happened here and what it what resulted from it? Yeah, it was an incident in the gym. I think it was maybe 2005 or 2006. I was 19 years of age and I was just out of school and I was fast fast tracked into the Leinster senior squad. And, and I probably hadn't, well, I definitely didn't have a great understanding of Olympic lifting in the gym and proper technique on, on how to actually lift. And it was one day in the gym, I was only in there first uh, a few weeks. And I suppose been the young teenager wanting to prove myself amongst all of these other uh, international rugby players, guys who I'd looked up to, you know, I probably got very much ahead of myself in terms of, of the weight that I could lift safely. And I think I was clean jerking 90 kilos at the time without having a huge amount of, of training and actually had to perform the lift safely. And, and I slipped a disc in my back at 19 years of age. And, and that, that one injury, you know, has probably cost me, you know, 20 or probably 20 soft tissue injuries down through the years, wow. which, you know, you miss a lot of matches because of them. One of my biggest regrets is not playing a hundred times for Ireland. I played 95 times. You know, it's a very elite club. It's a, it's an amazing milestone for somebody to get. And I think I missed maybe 30 international games by been out injury. And, you know, half of those at least were soft tissue injuries, which, which would have originated from my back injury back in 2006. So that's one day that, that I look back on and think, you know, had I been a little bit smarter with, with how I was managing my body, had I got a little bit better coaching and training in terms of how to execute the lift, it would have got me a lot more caps under my belt. Isn't that crazy, though? Like when you put when you articulate it there, you go, wow, this one lift, like this one moment where uh, you kind of get ahead of yourself, as you say, 19 years old in the Leinster squad surrounded by the guys who while you're doing your leaving search you're looking at them going oh I'm a fan of this guy and now you're shoulder to shoulder with them over the course of this series we've had different people from Ronnie Whelan to Tony Cascarino talk about similar things where you're the youngster you're the baby of the bunch and in the case of Ronnie Whelan it was trying to penetrate this Liverpool team that up till then he'd had you know, seen on the telly. Talk to me a bit about, you know, what what essentially precipitated that moment was you wanting to to prove that you belonged. Was it hard there when a lot of those guys 
would have seen you as an upstart, as somebody who hadn't, who was enjoying the fruits of their labor. A lot of references to this labor being them being the ones that had changed their boots out of the boot of a car. And now here you were, hair gel and all, straight out of Clongos, coming in and basically having to leapfrog all of their their work. How, how difficult an environment was that to penetrate? Yeah, it was really difficult and, and I found this very challenging. And, you know, I look back now and and I think to myself that that I probably went around it the wrong way. I could immerse myself into the environment differently, you know. So fresh out of school, I was still only a teenager. And the preconceived notion I had in my head was from day one, to show all of these along here and that I'm as good as them. I will challenge them for their jersey and I want to get to the top of the team as quickly as I can. If I had my time back or if someone had a aside and said, listen, you're the young kid here, just keep your head down, work hard, don't put your head above the parapet too often, you'll improve a lot quicker, you'll come into the squad you'll be a part of it an awful lot quicker. You know, you get to these environments, particularly in sport where there's a new kid on the block and you don't want to see them, you know, strutting their stuff around a little bit too much. And, and that's definitely a mistake that I made. But I think in my defense, it was very much out of ignorance. I didn't know the proper way to hmm. to behave and to act in that environment. And if someone had a pulled I mean, side never, said, you'd, never, you'd never been anywhere other than school. I mean, like, how, how would you know in some, in some ways, right? You, you hadn't yeah, been I, in any other jobs. And it was, it, was a, it was a boarding school as well. So when, you, when you're in a boarding school, you know, you are, you know, you do become very institutionalized and you're set in your ways and, and you don't really have any sort of, experience or perception of how to behave in the outside world. Mm. Like, I think that uh, a lot of people will relate to this period uh, if they if they do pick up the book and understand that essentially not only did you have the co-workers who knew the ropes, knew the system way better than you, who were all pals and obviously had their in jokes. And when those people are famous, <laughs> that's the other thing. They're beloved by the nation. It makes it even harder. It's not just, you know, John from accounts is friends with Tony in marketing. It's, you know, Brian O'Driscoll, Shane Horgan and others who are, are such established characters. It's, it's going to be hard to picture yourself being their friends, inverted commas. But on top of that. Another thing I felt that other people would relate to is the boss that didn't warm to you immediately. When was the first time you got the sense that Michael Checker was going to try and teach you a lesson in, or at least had pigeonholed you before you'd even open your mouth? Yeah, it, it probably wasn't until... The, the second year so my first season you know went really well there was injuries in the team so I got to play a lot more I scored a few tries I started making a little bit of a name for myself at 19 and I probably taught myself that yeah this is easy I've made it now 
I'll just keep going on this trajectory. And, you know, he probably thought that I was getting a little bit ahead of myself, like I said. And there was definitely a real element of, of old school coaching and teaching mm. to him in particular that these new kids coming through. They, yeah, they need to be taught a lesson. They need to understand that, you know, that there's a hierarchy here. You have to work your way up and, and you sort of, you're apprentice and you're doing your trade. Now, in saying that, I don't necessarily think that that is the right way to behave, not just in sport, but in any organization. And you talk about Tom from accounts coming in his first week, you know, you still want to have a workplace and a culture that that is very inclusive and welcoming. And that was one of my that was one of my criticism of Leinster at the time that that it wasn't, and I didn't feel overly welcome or or included in the squad for a few years. And, years, really. You know, Leinster in particular has, has yeah, it was a few years. Yeah, before I was you know twenty one, twenty two, before you start to really feel comfortable. And Leinster has improved dramatically over the over the years since those days. Uh, the culture of the place is an awful lot better. It's it's a lot more welcoming and inclusive to young guys coming through, and and they are sort of seen as as the heartbeat of the club. They're the guys who, you know, are, are going to drive the legacy for the next ten years. So th- they play a really important role within the organisation, and and rightly so. You know, you want to nurture your young talent coming through, as opposed. Uh, putting them down for a few years until they earn their stripes. Yeah, I mean, I didn't envy you at all. <laughs> like Rob, when when I heard of you kind of sitting in the car waiting outside till the last minute to go in for these video reviews, uh, where you knew you were going to be ripped asunder, uh, I was reminded of times, jobs, places gigs that I've done with where we can all we we all remember that sense a little bit of dread about your work and when it's your first job uh, super tough I sometimes think that some of the uh, we'll refer to it as noise around you I've heard you refer to it as noise around you in terms of criticism and kind of hyper focus on Uh, mistakes or uh, assumptions about your character is sometimes connected to your good looks. (laughs) I don't think this comes up in the book, but there has to be an element of it. Would you agree that people look at the exterior and go, I think I know what this is (laughs) based on a haircut, a jawline, your name stitched into your boots, whatever it is. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Is this something that you'll never admit to? Or did you ever get a sense of that? Yeah, it's not something that I'm going to <laughs> overly admit to. But I, I, I get your point of view. And, you know, it, it, it definitely did cross my mind a lot over the years. You know, you throw in the fact that you know, I was lucky enough to go to a very good privately educated school. And, and that just adds another layer to to people's preconceived notions. And listen, that, that's something that 
that I have battled with and everyone battles with it at some stage. And I'm guilty of it too. I think we all are. We're guilty of forming opinions of people that we don't really know. We just take a look at them on a television or doing an interview or something and we say, yeah, I don't really like that fella without any sort of substance underneath. So, but that's just how we are as humans. That's the way we're wired. And I think we're all guilty of it. Yeah, and I guess it's only us really handsome guys that can really understand the, the plight of this. I'm well, speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm getting out of the way now. Um, you, you know, like this kind of, as you say, process of becoming comfortable must come with a part of you that thinks I'm going to outwork everybody because the, you know, the questions that I've had thrown at me that people want asked of you include the question around work ethic and outworking those around you. And in some ways, the assumptions, the parody Twitter accounts and stuff being like fuel for the fire. There must be a little bit of you that goes, I don't want to hear the compliments. I don't want to hear the positive stuff throughout your career. There must have been a sense of give me give me the negative because I can use that on a daily basis to get more out of myself. Yeah, there's definitely an element of that. And I would always have used the criticism as, as fuel, I suppose. And, and it does add a an element of tenacious to you. You want to prove people wrong. And, you know, I, I think that the very lucky thing for me was, you know, since the age of I was four or five, the only thing that I wanted to do was play rugby for Ireland. And I think when you've got such a, a deep dream and one when you get a little bit old and you realize that you might be able to fulfill it. Your dream might become a reality. And it's so deeply embedded in you that, you know, I was always prepared to, I guess, prepared to do anything to try and fulfill that. And, you know, any sort of criticisms or which every player goes through, you know, it wasn't just me, every player experienced them at some stage throughout their career, but provided that, your deep curiosity of wanting to fulfill and explore your dream is still burning as strong as ever. You know, nothing else can really come in the way of it. So that's the beginnings of this chat. This There's double what you've just heard. And we, as I said, we go all sorts of different directions in the second half. Come on over and hear at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Members get Sonia O'Sullivan coaching them on a Tuesday in the Irishman running abroad. Marion McKeown breaking down the US situation on a Friday to hilarious effect. Both of those shows are a lot of fun. And I promise if you come on over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad this week, you will instantly start enjoying them. There's even my own stand up specials available over there bonus series extra series the irishman inside basketball and the irishman behind bars so much for to enjoy for the price of a pint less than the price of a pint each month over on patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad make the move this week and hear the rest of the rob carney episode